From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Eileen Tripp, Professor of Political Science and Gender and Women's Studies here at UW-Madison. Professor Tripp's research focuses on women in politics in Africa, women in peacebuilding, transnational feminism, and African politics more generally. She's the author of several award-winning books, including Women in Power in Post-Conflict Africa and many, many more, which we'll be talking about. She also teaches several widely regarded and popular courses in political science and gender studies. We wanted to talk to Professor Tripp about her research in the context of contemporary political issues surrounding women in politics and concerns that policies and national and even international efforts to address women's rights and gender inequalities have been adversely affected by the rise of what some might call an illiberal current of politics that is threatening democracies across the world. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Tripp. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, To get us started, do you want to give us a little background about yourself and your teaching and research interests? Sure. Uh, I started teaching at the University of uh, Wisconsin in 1992, and I teach comparative politics and African politics as well as gender and politics. Uh, I've my most of my research has been in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, but more recently, the last uh, four years, I've been working in Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, in North Africa, in the Maghreb. I'm also in a, I have a joint appointment, so my tenure home is in political science, but I also am uh, a member of the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the at the university, and so I um, and I've just finished chairing the department for the last three years. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how typical my background is. Um, I, my interests go way back to um, my years growing up in Tanzania and East Africa. Um, I had something of a unique childhood. Uh, and so my interests were heavily shaped by my parents. Uh, my mother came from Finland to Tanzania in 1952. And uh, she went to teach the first generation of uh, women teachers there. And my father, uh, who's from Union Grove, which is near Racine, Wisconsin, he joined her. And they were married in 1954 on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro in, in, in what was known as Tanganyika at the time. And my mother became a lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam. Dar es Salaam is the capital of, or what was the capital at the time of, of, of uh, Tanganyika. Um, and so and then, but I myself, I was born in Britain um, where my father had been doing refugee work with Lithuanians and Estonians and Latvians after the war. Um, but then they moved, so at the age of two, I, we went to, to, to Tanganyika, and I grew up there. Um, my father continued with refugee work with Namibians and other people from other parts of Africa. Um, and uh, so I lived in Tanzania from 1960 to 74, when I came into the U.S. to go to college. Um, I had finished high school at the age of 14, and after that, I just kind of hung out, <laughs> accompanied my mother doing field work. Um, she was working on her own dissertation 
in cultural anthropology at the University of Uppsala in, uh, in Sweden. And she wrote, um, her work was on women, rituals and symbols and healing in a local um, Muslim Zaramo society. And, and she focused on the role of women um, who, uh, it was a matrilineal society and which is where you trace the lineage through the, the, the women. And women were very central to the society as diviners who interpreted the maladies um, of people, <laughs> um, in, in effect, the maladies of society. And so I went around with her. I learned how I learned to do research um, field work. I, I took notes, um, watched her do interviews, and we spent weekends going to, I mean, this is very, <laughs> I don't think most kids do this, but as a, as a young, you know, as a teenager, I went to um, initiation ceremonies and divinations and exorcisms and weddings and other events. And so that, I think that got me interested um, eventually in, in how knowledge is created um, and how one goes about the research enterprise. Um, but I think more at the time, it, that wasn't so much what I had learned, but it was really more a very deep and lasting interest in how, um, you know, how cultures are very diverse and, and a very profound appreciation of the people that we live with um, in this coastal area of Tanzania. My mother then, after that, I went to the US to go to college and my parents filmed uh, with my sisters and my mother became a professor at the University of Helsinki. Um, but I came to the US at the age of 16 to go to college. Um, so then when it came to field work, um, I went to P got, got into a PhD program uh, at Northwestern eventually um, after going to, to University of Chicago. Uh, for my BA and master's. And, um, and then I returned to Tanzania to, uh, and I had many contacts there. So it you know, made doing field work very easy. Um, we had lived in the home of a woman parliamentarian um, and our neighbor was also a woman, another woman parliamentarian. Uh, my mother had taught the wife of the Tanzania's first president. Um, she had been her student. And my mother also knew the president, Julius Nyerere, who was the first president of Tanzania. Um, we knew the speechwriter of the president, the press secretary. Um, I went to Sunday school with the uh, with the children of various ministers, so you know they were close family friends. So I got to know, yeah. And, and then also I went to the government primary school, so I learned. I, I also my friends were, you know, because of where it was located, they were also um, kids of the of the politicians. So when I went then back to do field work for my PhD, uh, which was looking at the informal economy and the politics of the informal economy, the, the, the unregulated non-tax part of the economy, which was the real economy. Um, I went there in the middle of the worst economic crisis that Tanzania had faced and very few people were doing research there at the time because it was so difficult to live. Um, and anyway, but I, when I went then I had all these contacts and, and it made it, my work much easier. So that's how I got into it. I don't know, that's not a path that most students at Wisconsin would take. But um, I think, you know, that the, what I would share in is that I, you know, I had a basic curiosity about other people, other parts of the world. And I think that that's what drove, drove me to continue in that, in that vein um, through my own research. I kind of want to dive right into some of the books that you have published and a lot of the work that you've put out into the world. And I know you very recently published a new book that you've been working on for the past four years. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. So this book was 
uh, my originally my master's at Chicago was uh, in uh, Middle East studies, and uh, I had spent a lot of time learning Arabic and. Uh, and yet, but then I didn't pursue that initially, um, partly because I had thought for at first I would work in Libya and then that I just then when I actually came to doing the field work, I realized that's not going to happen. I would be probably arrested at the border as, as, a, as a CIA agent or something. So I, 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 sh I shelved that, but my idea was always to come back and work in, in uh, North Africa. And so most of my career, like I said, was sub-Saharan Africa, but then this most, so, but this last book that I did um, was really an attempt to, you know, to put to use the skills and the knowledge that I had learned over the years about North Africa. And so I wrote this book called Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocrats uh, Adopt Women's Rights. Uh, and uh, I uh, asked, um, was asking in the book, you know, why Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria have converged in terms of the adoption of women's rights. In the past, it really had only been Tunisia that had made advances, and in fact, they were well, very, very advanced in terms of women's rights um, going back to 1956. But now all these three countries had converged, and they were very taking a different path than what than most uh, countries in the what we call the MENA region or the Middle East and North Africa region. Uh, and even though they shared the same religion, similar language, similar his history to, to, to a great extent, and yet they were you know, going in a very different, at a faith, faster pace in terms of promoting women as leaders and as in terms of promoting uh, women's constitutional and legislative reform. And so I argue in this book that, that uh, what's happening in these three countries is that uh, the leaders used women's rights as a way of pushing back against the expansion of Salafism, um, that is kind of religious conservatism, um, and, in, and these tendencies internally within the country. And so they use women's rights in a very instrumental way to create this kind of modernizing image of their society, kind of present it to the world as, you know, we are progressive, we're, we're, in, we're concerned with at least women's rights, if not human rights, and so on. Um, and it wasn't just the secular parties that were interested in this. This was the Islamist parties themselves that wanted to, ha to have to take a more moderate approach and wanted to distinguish themselves from the extremists, the jihadists, the Salafists. And so, and they found that not supporting, I mean, even though they, some, they had originally been very hostile to women's rights and, and, and in the, uh, the, um, the, ruling uh, Islamist party in uh, Morocco, for example, had opposed uh, the uh, reforms that family law reforms, which would have affected women um, early on. They made a 180 degree turn once they realized that politically it was going to hurt them. It became a political liability. And so it became a political necessity. The same thing with the Nahda party in Tunisia. They had been Islamist party there, which was in power also wanted to promote uh, kind of a conservative view of, of women's equality, um, which was known as, um, which, which kind of had a, you know, women would be, women were equal to men, but in their own sphere. In other words, women in the private sphere, in the home, and men in the public sphere, in, the, in politics. And the women would have none of that. <laughs> and, and there was a big pushback against this during the constitutional debates and Inahda backed down, this Islamist party backed down 
And um, as a result, they got a very progressive, in fact, one of the most progressive constitutional constitutions in the, the world um, when it comes to women's rights. So um, these are you know, two examples, but, you know, but um, you know, showing, and then I also show how in, at moments of critical um, junctures of social upheaval, women's movements were then key in pushing for these reforms. So it didn't just happen on its own. There had to be women's movements active in, in making sure that, that, that and holding the, the, the party's feet to the fire that they didn't, that they continued the reforms. And the Islamist party in the PJD in Morocco has continued with these women's rights reforms and doesn't like them. It doesn't, I don't think that would be their preference, but, but they, have, they have to move ahead with them. And it's their, their political future depends on it. So, um, so that's, that's what that book is about. Yeah, there there's so many things I want to talk about that you mentioned in there. But first, do you want to speak at all, especially for students that are wanting to get into the same kind of research and the same kind of scholarship? Um, what kind of work you did with languages and what kind of um, or just even like how you approached maybe what languages to learn or what languages to study as you are um, becoming an expert in right. a region, not uh, the United States? Right. Yeah, well, I had one advantage, like <laughs> I grew up trilingual. Um, so Finnish was my mother tongue. And uh, then I and then Swahili, I learned as a child, I don't remember learning it. But you know, I grew up speaking it. And then my because of my father, I also knew English. Um, and then later on, I studied uh, uh, Arabic and French. And in and then when I was in Morocco, I also studied the Arabic dialect, which is, it, it would be very difficult to study that in the US, you have to kind of be on the ground. Although these days you can learn almost anything because of the internet and you can set up language training, even for local dialect training, um, just using Skype and, uh, or, you know, some other Zoom or whatever. Uh, so that even that's now much more possible. And I've had students who've learned, like one student learned a Choli, which is a language in Northern Uganda, which is not, again, it's an uncommonly taught language. There's not, it's not a written language, but she learned that um, through her, um, through, but with someone over Skype. So, um, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I think language is really critical and the reason why I came to appreciate the importance of language was that my mother, who I, like I said, I had done research with her, she had just such an amazing rapport with people in Tanzania, and then she spoke perfect Kiswahili and Kizaramo, she doesn't have an accent. Um, I also don't have an accent because, you know, I spoke it as a child. But language opens doors for people to, <laughs> for, for you, it means you can joke with people, you can understand how they think, what they value, you just simply can't understand a society unless you speak the languages of the countries. And you know, in a country like Tanzania, people really appreciate speaking. I mean, even people who just make a little effort, people will be, oh, you know, they're so appreciative of it. So they're very welcoming of that. Of it. So you don't have to be afraid of making mistakes or anything. Um, but yeah, the language is it, language opens so many doors. It's it's so critical. Um, and uh, the the only challenge is that sometimes. <laughs> especially at the PhD level, it's, it's difficult because you have to learn the language and some languages like Arabic, it takes year, they take years to learn um, because the grammatical structure is, is so difficult. Um, Finnish has 15 cases, which is it's one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. And I'm glad I never had to learn it because I spoke it as a child. But you know, if you were to learn a language like that, it's, it, it, it would take forever. Um, so um, 
but but anyway, Arabic, you know, though Chinese, um, Japanese, these languages take a little more time, many more years. And the problem is you have to start before you really know all, what your research question is going to be or what your project is going to be. And so that's always a bit of a challenge, at least at the PhD level. But you know, at the undergraduate level, hey, go for it. <laughs> you know, learn what learn what what um, what you want. You know, what if you want to work in a particular part of the world? You know, learn languages. Um, go for it. Yeah, that is great advice for students, especially now. Um, just going for it. I love that. Now back to some of the things that you're talking about um, as you're explaining your book, seeking legitimacy. I also kind of want to talk about. Uh, the topics that you mentioned that also appear in some of your articles that you have published for like the Washington Post or in your book, Women in Power in Post-Conflict Africa. In it, you talk about how some of your research has found that women receive more rights or get more political power in post-conflict uh, nations in Africa. Do you want to delve into that research and your findings a little bit more? Sure. Uh so uh, just to go back a little bit, I, I wrote a book about this and some articles. Um, after I was hired here at, at uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, I went to Uganda in 1992 to carry out research for my second book project. And I was interested in why Uganda, which had just come out of years of major conflict, had so many women in top government positions and why the country had the highest rates of women in parliament in Africa at the time. And that it was just, you know, strikingly different. Um, what I didn't know then and couldn't have known was that this was the beginning of a whole pattern that became evident after 2000 that you saw, like you said, the post-conflict countries had higher rates of women uh, in politics um, and that they were making more women's rights reforms in their constitutions and legislat legislation compared with non-post-conflict countries. And so in my book, Women in Politics in Uganda, I attributed the changes uh, to shifts in gender relations during the war, and, and I think that when that was correct. Um, but at the time, I was more focused on the emergence of autonomous women's associations that were not tied to the government or the ruling party in some way. And, um, but subsequently after the, this Uganda book, what, and what, I've, what I then saw was this pattern of 15 other countries that came out of major conflict, not, not just small conflict, but like 30 year wars, and they had the same patterns. And so that's then led to this, this other book that I wrote in 2015. Um, and so I, I looked then at, at these patterns and, and I focused on the Ugandan case, but also Angola and Liberia. And so, and it wasn't just women in parliament, but you had, you know, in post-conflict Liberia, they had the first elected woman president in Africa. Uh, post-conflict Uganda had the uh, woman vice president for 10 years. Um, post-conflict Rwanda had the highest rates of, and has, still has the highest rates of female legislative representation in the world. Women make up 62% of the parliamentary seats. In uh, post-conflict Namibia, uh, Namibia is in a process of adopting a gender zebra policy, <laughs> and I'll explain the zebra part. Um, and that is that women and men, they, you know, they, they share governance. You have the, the white stripes and the men and the black stripes. Anyway, um, they share governance. So women and men have 50% of the positions in government, parliament, and state-owned enterprises. So, you know, you see this, you see this pattern throughout Africa. And what I then argue in, the, in my work is that 
there are several things explain how this came about. One is that the decline of major conflicts uh, created these opportunity structures, as we call them in political science, little political you know, openings, political openings um, for peace negotiations and constitution making exercises. And these allowed women then activists to press for women's rights agenda and increased representation. So there were kind of moments that were created. Um, and so if you compare the post-conflict constitutions with the non-post-conflict constitutions in Africa, there's a big difference. There's, there are many, many more provisions in, women, in terms of women's rights. Um, another explanation that I make is that um, because of women's experiences during the war, both as fighters, but also as peacemakers, this gave them common cause. And so they then mobilized around these concerns through these autonomous women's movements. Um, and, the, and the end of conflict um, disrupted uh, traditional gender roles. Um, you now had um, more incentives that were created for women to demand their rights and representation. So you see them uh, in particular focusing on issues of violence, gender-based violence during the conflict, um, access to land because many of them were displaced and lost land during that process and then women's leadership, because that was key to being able to have a, uh, if an impact on everything that affected um, their societies and their households. The, the third explanation that I give is that the countries coming out of conflict were more susceptible to international influences. And so there's a timing issue here as well. You didn't see these same patterns before the 1990s, but you see them especially after 1995 and 2000, even more so. And that has to do with um, the increased influence of international actors like the United Nations. First it was UNIFEM and then it became UN Women um, and other international actors that were pressing um, regional organizations like the African Union um, in Southern Africa, the Southern African Development Consortium. Um, and, they, and, and they would set goals and targets for women to, uh, women's rights. So by a certain year, you'd have you, they wanted to see more women in parliament and so on. So um, these international pressures then also uh, had an impact on on these changes, and especially countries that were more more dependent on donor funds, um, they also uh, changed. So um, and then and now more recently, I've been doing research. That's what I'm writing up here now at the Wilson Center, where I'm I am in the D in DC. I've been doing over the summer interviews in. Uh, I've been looking at at the role of authoritarianism in and women's rights and why so many authoritarian countries, especially the ones coming out of conflict, have again made more advances than democratic countries, which is kind of just the opposite of the way you know. The theory theory goes that usually democracy and women's rights go hand in hand. Um, and I was interested, especially Uganda, looking now 30 years after I started my initial project there, what's what's changed? And uh, and I've been looking at Botswana. Well, of, of the authoritarian countries, I did Mauritania, finished the interviews there, um, Uganda, and uh, I still have Zimbabwe to do. And then of the democratic countries, I'm comparing the authoritarian ones with the democracies. And I'm looking at uh, Botswana and uh, uh, Namibia. I just did an interview this morning with a minister in, uh, a female minister in Botswana. So, um, so what, I, what I'm seeing in Uganda is that even 30 years later, these norms stick and, and 
uh, and are very well accepted. Women leaders are very well accepted. These patterns that were started could have continued. They've continued passing legislation. It's not easy, but it's continuing. And um, the effects are also symbolic. Um, now, you, now you find that um, the, about half the people in business, in, in even major businesses, are women. And Uganda is ranked, I think, second in terms of women business owners in the world. So these were all spin-offs spin of having women in politics because women began to say, oh, well, if a woman can be a vice president, surely she can run a university, surely she can run a business, surely she can um, you know, run a, a gas station or whatever it was. And so it kind of opened up the possibility in terms of thinkability, in terms of what uh, women could envision for themselves. Yeah, that is all so fascinating, and I'm really excited to hear your upcoming research that you're doing right now. But why aren't we seeing some of these same kinds of things in Western countries? Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, it's not it's not that we don't see, it's not a question of Western versus non-Western. In fact, these patterns have been there um, for um, in in other parts of the world. And it's, so it's not just Africa. The reason why Africa, it's so visible in Africa is because there's been so many conflicts and, and then so many conflicts that have ended. And so it's a, the pattern is very, very stark. Uh, but, you know, again, it, it's in, um, and, and most of these have been in a function of civil war um, because civil war forced the players internally to renegotiate the power balance um, but it's also happened in countries that haven't um, had um, a civil war. So, for example, after World War I, if you look at the, the major advance in terms of the women's right to vote, it came after World War I in the U.S. and in European countries. And um, so before the war, Woodrow Wilson had been very much against suffrage for women. But after the war, he recognized the contributions that women had made during in the war effort, and he changed his mind. And also as a result of very strong pressure from um, the suffragists. Uh, in fact, it, you know, if you want to look at what happened, uh, one one way of thinking about this is, you know, why did most European countries then get the right to vote for women in that period, but not Switzerland? Well, Switzerland stands out in stark contrast to these other countries. Um, uh, because it had a position of neutrality. And in fact, there have been no shakeup in the government or any in the status quo since the mid 1800s there. Um, it never had large scale violent conflict um, at, since 1848. Um, and so Switzerland then ended up being the last country in Europe to grant women the right to vote. Um, the, the federal approval came in 1971. And in fact, the last canton that gave women the right to vote, that's a subnational entity, was 1993. <laughs> and so, you know, there's many factors that might explain this, but, you know, one of them is this fact that there wasn't this shakeup in the status quo and in the, in the political and elite structures. Um, and so that made then gender related transformations um, much more difficult. I mean, there's also the, the federal structure, the fragmented women's movement, some of the cultural norms you can point to. But I think the one, the key difference is this, you know, the Switzerland's. Um, just didn't have this this shakeup in their society that would have lent itself to um, opening up for um, for the for the right to vote for women. So it's not just a phenomena in in the uh, in Africa, but I think it's you know more visible for for particular reasons. 
Yeah. Um, so why, I guess you, you also asked why haven't we seen the same kind of changes in the US? Well, um, there are many tracks, I could say, or many different paths to, uh, to the advancement of women. And the Nordic track is one. <laughs> It's but and it's a very it's a slower track, but it's it's you know it, it um, emerged with the with the with the rise of the um, uh, welfare state, a very strong welfare state, a very strong egalitarian ethos that emerged in the Nordic countries, um, and you know U.S. is on its on a different track. Um, it's not so much that the, you know you can look at different factors, you can look at cultural impediments, um, but I don't think the U.S. is especially you know. I mean, any more culture has any more cultural impediments than other countries. Um, you could look at structural impediments like economic factors or like the fact that, you know, many of the people who go into politics in the US, I think 40% are lawyers. And it, it's only been recently that you've had now equal numbers of men and women lawyers for a long time men dominated the field. And so you the pipeline just wasn't there, but it's not that's changing. Uh, and so for me, the, the biggest factors are really institutional. And there's two institutions in particular that make the, the, that you can point to. Uh, one is uh, the uh, electoral system. And I don't know if we want how you know, much we want to get into the details of it, but the, the proportional representation list systems, party list systems, are much more favorable. The ones you see these in Europe in, in particular, but you know, all over the world they do much better than the first past the post or majoritarian systems like the ones we have in the US. So that's one factor. And then the other is um, the adoption of quotas. So after 1995, um, there was a conference held, the fourth conference on women that was held in Beijing. And one of the uh, outcomes of that conference was a <clears throat> stipulation that all, or member states all signed on to a, the, uh, the platform of action, which stipulated that uh, all countries would take make efforts to increase women's leadership in all areas, government, non-government, all areas. And so that's when you then began to see an increase in the use of a various affirmative action programs called quotas. You had uh, legislative quotas, you have party quotas, you have uh, reserved seats, you know, various kinds of systems in the party lists, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the countries that have party lists that have these proportional representation systems, there'll be a stipulation by the, you know, there'll be a law passed that says that every, you have to alternate men and women, zebra style, I say, in, in Namibia, <laughs> man, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, on the party list. And sometimes they'll say you have to put the very first, um, name on the list has to be a woman uh, because if you get one seat and it's a man then <laughs> then you, the woman doesn't get get in so they might stipulate that so they have all kinds of they might put sanctions they say if you don't do the, the legislation might say if you don't have this kind of a party lists um, alternation of men and women or a quota for for, for women have 30 percent women on the list or whatever it is if you don't do that your party will not be able to have um, be on the ballot, so or or they might be fined, or they or they might not get resources. Some some countries give money to, to parties, so there's all kinds of um, incentives. And these days, these incentives are becoming much stricter um, for countries that adopt quote, these kind of quotas. In some countries, they don't have 
legis legislative seats, they have reserved seats. So in Uganda, for example, they set aside, um, uh, every district has to have a, a woman's seat. So they have that kind of a system. In some places you have also, in addition to that, party quotas. So in the, the African National Congress in South Africa or Frelimo in Mozambique or Swapo in Namibia, they have their own quota in, in the party itself of how many women they want to put forward. So these are all different mechanisms that were then adopted after 1995. And so you see the countries that did the best, they're the ones that adopted these quotas. The ones that did even better, also change like Rwanda changed their system to, to also include a, a proportional representation system. So these were the, this is what happened. Now we don't have this in the US. So, you know, it's not gonna happen here. And, and also I think another reason why it's, it's not going to happen here is because we have this much more individualistic way of thinking about women's rights. The idea here is, well, if, you know, if Oprah can do, do, do become wealthy or if Hillary can become a, a senator or you know, um, secretary of state, anybody can do it. So we have this, we, we think that it can just, it's just gonna happen on its own. Um, and so we don't think in terms of collective solutions like quotas. Um, whereas in Africa or the Middle East, you know, nobody has any illusions. Um, we, women, women just simply aren't gonna make it without some kind of extra effort. And so as a result, you have a country like United Arab Emirates in the Middle East, women hold 50% of the seats. Um, Mexico, 48% our neighbor <laughs> to the south. And, uh, and also it's not just in the parliament, you know, 14 countries in the world now have 50% women in the cabinet. And four of these are in Africa, um, Ethiopia, Rwanda, South Africa, and Guinea-Bissau. So, you know, but, but what's different about these countries is that they're, they're not, they have no illusions that, you know, women are not gonna get anywhere if there isn't a collective effort. And if you look at our rank, it, what, where, what, happened, what will happen in the US, we have now, we rank, we're ranked 85th in the world in terms of women in parliament. And if you look at the rate of change, we will, it will be another 94 years till we reach parity with women and men. Imagine 94 years, if nothing happened, if we just keep going the way we're going, training women, leadership training, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's, our, that's why we'll, we, we will begin, we will trail most countries in the world increasingly as we, as we go along. Eventually, I want to ask about, I know a couple articles on your website call for a fifth UN conference on women's rights. But before that, is there any research or any talk about how, and this, this might only be recently, but is there any talk of how some of these laws or like constitutional things based on gender how they might be enforcing like the gender binary is there is there any kind of um research or talk on that subject there is but it's mostly in acad in academia um and so it's i mean people are just beginning to think about issues in you know in, in non-binary terms uh and uh so it's a very new subject and people, and so up until now, it's just been so important just to get, you know, equal equality in terms of, um, you know, the sexes. Uh, and so that, so, you know, going beyond that, I think it's been, it's been much slower and much, um, it's, it's been a very, very new topic, but it's changing. I mean, I was surprised in my interviews in Botswana that I've been doing, they just got, um, last year they decriminalized um, 
uh, homosexuality. And there's also been two court cases around with tra involving trans people. And, um, and that was that resulted that went to the Constitutional Court and that resulted in uh, some changes around discrimination against trans people. So it is, um, it's that discussion's coming there, and I've and, I, and I've talked to quite a few people who are very, who are involved in these movements, and and especially lawyers who are, um, you know, trying to push <laughs> the envelope on some of these issues. But it's a new, it's a new subject, and I, I haven't yet done Namibia, but I understand that there it's even more, there's more, even more discussion on along this front. Yeah, I was just curious. So thank you for entertaining yeah. that. So back to some of the 20 uh, possible UN conference things. I know there are a couple oh. articles on your website referencing possible calls for a new UN conference on women's rights. Can you talk about some of the goals that uh, some people are calling for that might come out of a conference like that? Yeah. Um, huh. Right now, because of COVID, all, all the plans and all the, the advocacy around the next conference uh, had um have been stalled so i don't know where exactly that debate is i think it's been more the, the goals right now in the discussions is more one to hold on to the gains that have been made um, because there's been so much pushback in in various parts of the world so for example in us unfortunately has been part of that that pushback uh, or backlash you might say uh, one of the most uh influential coalitions in uh, internationally is the group of friends of the family and this was been formed in the United Nations, um, not officially, but you know, in around policies that have to do with reproductive rights, um, LGBTQ rights, and a maternal politics that um, require that puts the, the burden on women to for mater mothering roles rather than state support for um, childcare, for example. And this this policy, these policies have been pushed. Um, is, are being led by the United States, but they're supported by Russia, China, and the Vatican, and several Muslim majority states. So you can imagine what company we're in here. And guess who's pushing back against these? Um, Tunisia, Lebanon, um, in the Arab states group, um, South Africa, Namibia, Liberia, Cape Verde. Um, the whole Latin America group is against these policies. Um, Canada, certainly, New Zealand, Australia, the European Union. I mean, so it's it's very telling where we're sitting these days in terms of women's rights, um, and they really do. And so the the, the big areas where uh, where the confrontation is is around reproductive rights, and, and abortion is is a key there, and then and then the rights of LGBTQ people and um, maternal politics. These are the kind of three key areas. And so we're trying to people are trying to hang on to the, those rights and not not see them go reversed or go even further back. Um, so that's kind of where things are at um, right now, but I, I can't say much about the 20, whatever the, the new conference plans. They used to be started out in, in Mexico City, 1975, um, then um, Nairobi, 85. There was a Copenhagen conference in, in between in 1980, um, led by the UN, then the Beijing, 1995, and then there was supposed to be one in um, um, 2005, but it never happened because many countries were not willing to put money behind it. It's a, it's a big enterprise to organize one of these conferences, uh, and they involve both tens of thousands of people who are uh, 
government representatives, uh, but also th there's a whole another second conference held at the same time by non-governmental organizations. And this, this the, the Beijing conference was really used to galvanize, in fact, it helped really create women's movements in, at least in Africa. Um, and they started working, cooperating, working together, dividing up kind of area, issue areas. Uh, and so then there was a conference, for example, in Tanzania, they had one, they met in, Tanz in Tanzania, and I think 120 NGOs, women's NGOs met at the, in, um, prior to the Beijing conference. Then, and this happened in the, all of the African countries, then they met regionally. So there was the East African uh, Regional Conference and they set up their own agendas and their own goals. And then there was the Africa-wide conference in Dakar and then they went to Beijing. And in, in each of these countries, you saw the, the, the galvanizing of women's mobilization um, so it's really critical. And so the idea is that if you have another conference like this, it will energize and, and, and kind of get, um, get the activists mobilized again um, around a new agenda. So that, I think that's the, the goal, but it all, it all depends on whether countries are willing to put money into it. And you know, the US position now is just being is very retrograde. So there'll have to be new players um, involved. Absolutely. It sounds like we are definitely due for a new conference, especially based on the timeline that you mentioned, not having one since 1995. Right. And so we don't have a whole lot of time left uh, today, but I wanted to make sure that we talked about this because you and some of your fellow female colleagues were uh, recently named editors of a very prestigious and important uh, review in our field, the American Political Science Review. Uh, do you want to mm -hmm. talk about uh, what that means and some of the things that you'll be doing on the American Political Science Review? Right. So um, there's been, a, over the years, there's been an increase in the number of women in political science. Um, we make up almost half of political scientists today. Uh, but you don't find we're not as well represented still as full professors. Women make up only 36% of full professors in political science, and you don't find women as well represented in major research institutions. So UW is one of these institutions, and we only have 10 out of 30 professors that are women in our department. So that's well below the national average. Um, anyway, one of the problems that's been identified is that, and one of the major ways you, you advance yourself in the field, in academia, is through publications. And so your career depends on, in, in, in no small part on the ability to publish and especially in respected and reputable outlets like the American Political Science Review. Um, there was a study done for, there's been many studies, but one was done by Michelle Dion, who's one of my colleagues on the, on the uh, editorial team. And she and Sarah McLaughlin Mitchell found that they looked at 38 political science journals, and they found that women's articles are proportionally fewer than their rates of membership in the associations that are associated with the various journals. Uh, women submit less research for in these kind of top peer-reviewed journals. And so as a result, uh, 12 of us got together and we decided that we're going to do something about it. And one of the ways to do something about that is to signal 
Um, so we're all women and we're, it's a very diverse group in terms of our um, racial ethnic makeup. We're sending a signal to the field <laughs> that you know women should be publishing and, and women's work is of value. And we're not just, um, you know, we're publishing obviously both men and women, and I'm sure it'll end up being still more men publishing than women, but the goal is to, to encourage more women to submit. Yeah, so these things take time, and it may be even that while we're while we, we have while we're there for four years, it won't change things that much. We, we hope it does, but you know, it's still it may not, and especially with COVID, we're noticing that we're still getting very few submissions from women. Um, but uh, and in fact, it's hard even to get women now to review because of COVID. Um, but anyway, and that's because women have more responsibilities often at home, and if they're raising small children, they 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 have more on their plate. Uh, although we're getting also some of the, some comments by some of the male um, reviewers as well that I can't review something because of, I have you know to take care of my three-year-old or whatever. So it's not just women making those comments, but it's still there's still a very clear imbalance. Um, so we're hoping that this will at least send a signal that 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 um, things can change and um, it'll hopefully encourage um, more women to get published. Oh, we're also actually we're also. Um, making sure that that more that we check to see citations are people citing um, are they citing women are they citing minorities are they citing people from the various countries they're studying we're looking at that we're also looking at um, we have a have quite a heavy emphasis on questions of ethics and and how the research is conducted so we have quite a bit of attention being paid to and some new new reg rules around the ethics um, issues. And then we're also making sure that the reviewers are balanced so that, that not just having male reviewers, but also women reviewers um, to, to, to as great an extent as possible. So these are all things that, we, that we're trying to do to, to fix the problem. Is there anything else you want to say or plug uh, before we wrap up today? <laughs> There's so much I could talk about. <laughs> um, I think yeah, I think just to encourage, if, if these are students that are listening to this, I think really just to encourage people to be curious, you know, follow your curiosity, you know, ask interesting questions. <laughs> um, um, don't be afraid to go off the beaten path. Um, you know, I, I feel like my, my, my research has taken me to 11 countries in Africa and, and even more for, to give talks and so on. And it's been, it's been a, a wild ride, I have to say. Um, I've loved every minute of it. I love talking to people in, in political science. You know, I, you get to talk to, I talk to prime ministers and, and ministers and parliamentarians, but I also talk to just ordinary people, people you know, ordinary peasants. And it's allowed me to, to, in a way, to get to know, and not just like a journalist where you kind of do superficially, like you can really get into depth on, on subjects and really learn about different cultures and, and people and how a society works, even though we're focusing on politics, but you know, you learn a lot about how the society works and, and, and what, what brings about change. And um, it's, you know, I, I can't say enough about how much, how much fun I've had in the process. And uh, I, if I had to do it again, I would do exactly the same thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Your wealth of knowledge is extremely appreciated on the podcast. So yeah, thank you again. Okay, thanks.
For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.